0: We're working in partnership with Charles Tirrett across the ashes. As part of the partnership, Charles Tirrett are offering the chance to win a £500 voucher to spend on their site. You've only got a few days remaining to enter. Entries close on the 23rd of December. To enter the competition, simply follow the link in the podcast description and also look out for it on our social channels over the coming days. We've also previously mentioned our exclusive offer for the Wisdom audience where you can enjoy 20% off everything with the code WISDON20 at Charles Tirrett. Hello and welcome to the Wisden Cricket Weekly podcast. Australia are 2 0 up in the 2021 22 Ashes as England couldn't quite cling on for the draw in the final day at Adelaide. They were dropped, catches, a couple of painful blows to the skipper, another dramatic first innings collapse. six foot five opening bowler, bowling offies. Five more frustrating days for Joe Root's men in Australia all round. I'm Yazran and with me today is Wisden.com features editor Tar Ashim. The magazine editor of Wisden Cricket Monthly, Joe Harmon, and the managing editor of Wisden.com dot com, Ben Gardner. If our sound quality is is not quite what it normally is, it's because we're recording remotely, thanks to Omicron. Um, James asks, what hobbies would you recommend me taking up, considering that watching England play cricket really isn't working out for me? Um, ben, what should James take up instead?
1: Yeah, I don't know. It does. It does feel the, the the thing that gets me with watching England play cricket is like the the hope that gets there, like when it just like absolutely you shouldn't basically there's like you just veer between hoping that like somehow this could somehow turn out okay and then realizing that no everything is going to go badly and that england basically don't have a hope so uh i mean I don't know but b- brewing brewing beer maybe that could be a that could, that could be something I mean, it was, it was, it was day two, wasn't it? That, that was the, the, no, sorry, day three kind of felt like day two because Australia's first innings was slow and long uh, when England were, what well, they had that partnership. And it was actually, that, that was the worst bit because the, the collapse felt so inevitable even when that partnership was in process, basically. Like, uh, uh, that's exactly what happened in the first test. Uh, that partnership happens and then, they collapse these at all. That, that, that was the, the bit that almost made me lose hope. And then Butler goes and plays like he does uh, on the final day. And you kind of think that, you know, m- maybe if England just can, you know, even draw one of these last three or, you know, put, put up a, there's a, there's sort of a thriller in there. That'll be enough to keep the faith for me personally. So I, I'd say stick with the cricket for now. Uh, but yeah, it can be pretty bleak at times.
2: I, I would just get some sleep, right? You know, just rest up till the new year. Why, why you know, just don't stay up all night and watch this. Um, like I've done for the last five days, it's uh, you know just just you know get a good good night's kip, just get a nice routine going. Don't don't do this whole thing where you stay up all night and watch cricket. It's just not worth it.
0: So, as as you alluded to, you stayed up to watch all five days. Um, England have now lost eleven of their last twelve tests in Australia. You watched every ball of this one. Did you feel like you've seen this match before? Yeah, I mean at times I
2: thought I was watching highlights of the 2017-18 uh, Adelaide test. It was pretty much kind of kind of went in that same formula was wasn't it? Um yeah, I mean it was kind of also a bit of a rerun of the last test in a way. It's just it's it's pretty much a predictable pattern with England. It's just you kind of expect the little sort of um top top order wobble um then you kind of see the root 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 going and a, a new little feature to the to to England in 2021 has been the the Dawood Milan kind of resurgence so that's that kind of helped it go for a bit they build a little partnership Um, and then it's not just oh there's one dismissal there's the sort of little middle order collapse and then and then it all just sort of comes crumbling down Uh, and England's bowlers never really have a chance after that do they Um, there's been a lot of sort of talk about across the last two tests about you know which bowler should have played in this test and the first test Stuart Broad should have played there in the second test. It was Mark Wood should have played there. Um, But that doesn't really matter if you're not really going to score many runs in your first innings, because then you're always kind of chasing the game. Um, England obviously started bowling a bit fuller in in their second inning, in Australia's second innings this time around, and and they improved. Um, But they were already, the game was already kind of gone uh, because of the the first innings lead. Uh, So it's just the same
0: sort of repetitive nature of it, which is, um, which is, intriguing to to watch i'd say joe i remember we said at the start of the chris silverwood era when they lost 1-0 in new zealand on two roads um at mount monganui and, and then drew at hamilton and we said that actually drawing tests that you otherwise would have lost is quite important for this in the team especially looking back at the 17 18 ashes this felt like a test that a decent side just wouldn't have lost australia scoring that 400 but pretty slowly and england having that first innings collapse and still almost getting the draw Australia were missing Pat Cummins and, and Josh Hazelwood, Pat Cummins quite dramatically through COVID-related issues on the on the morning of the match. And those drop catches, as well, that, that felt like a really missed opportunity for England to, to at least escape with a draw.
3: Yeah, I was thinking exactly the same thing this morning as I was watching Butler and Mokes and then Butler and then Robinson thinking this England should have should have been able to get away with a draw here. I mean you could argue that for England to actually have any chance in this series, they probably needed to win this test match. Uh See, mathematically, they can fight back, but it doesn't doesn't look lightly. But if they're fighting for for pride in this series, which I think is realistically what what they are doing, then this should have been one that they shouldn't have lost. They didn't need to lose, as you say. Without Cummins and Hazelwood, um, that was a real glimmer of hope. And and again, you look you have to look at the the batting really, and 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 also the catching. I, actually, I was going to ask you as you said last time, you were surprised that Phil and I were were angry and you were finding it funny. Were you still finding it funny throughout throughout this test match?
0: There are Definitely some very, very funny bits. So Joe Root getting hit in the box, Joe Root then trying to run uh, the four English seamers bowling between 78 and 84 miles per hour, going quite economically but not taking many wickets. That was quite funny. J- J- Joss Butler standing on his stumps for the first time in his whole career that was that was quite funny um it was tragic it was tragic but also also funny but yeah yes, I mean, yes.
3: This, this is i think this will be remembered as uh the joss butler test match uh, which for anyone who hadn't seen the game and just looks at a scorecard it would look like he'd had almost no role in it whatsoever and that he'd got a duck and 20 odd but obviously if you're watching closely there were the drop catches there a the brilliant catches there was the pathos of that second innings dismissal and it it kind of encapsulated Josh butler's test career all in in one game really the the kind of the the glimmers of hope the the disappointment the dispute that he causes between those who back him and those who don't and i think people listen to the show would would say we're probably more on his side than than the average and probably a lot of listeners find that quite frustrating wondering why do we still say butler's worth worth a crack well Today's innings was a little example, not a characteristic example, of, of why I think we do want him in that side because to to pull out that performance, albeit in the end it was broadly pointless, uh, given what he'd gone through in that match, shows shows the ticker of the boat, shows his his uh, his drive and determination. As we were exchanging WhatsApp messages over the course of that match, I said, purely speculatively, I haven't got any sources or links here, but... I just said to, to you guys, I can see Butler retiring from Test cricket very soon here because what, what's what's in it for him, really? He's a, he's a white ball king. He's got the white ball captaincy around the corner. Um, he's got a young family. Does he need all this? Well, he doesn't really. But the second inning showed that however tough the Test match has been for him, he's still he still desperately wants it. Um, and, you know, there are, there are very few positives to take from the, the Test series so far. And Butler will still be absolutely distraught that he dropped the catches that he did, um, but we can at least take something from from his uh, display of kind of grit and determination with the bat on day five.
0: When you sent that WhatsApp message, I think a lot of people were thinking the same. He looked so down after after the drop catches, and I guess it was almost impressive for him to bat like that given the test match he'd he'd had. Um, ben. What, what do you make of, of Butler as a test batter? He's, he's played now 50-odd 50, 50 test matches. And there have been some brilliant moments. Um, the the innings against Pakistan last year. He had a really good year in 2018. Really good tour of Sri Lanka in 2018 as well. But you get the sense that he, he's almost, his best moments always, almost come in quite extreme conditions uh, and, and scenarios. And actually, it's constructing a normal first innings score of 80 plus is what he actually finds mo- most difficult. Almost,
1: yeah, I- I'd say that. Um, I mean, I found some of the criticism of Josh Button in this test match uh, understandable because you know it's an Ashes series and emotions are heightened, but quite harsh, really. I mean, he what he didn't have a great game with the gloves, uh, but that that is uncharacteristic. I think. I mean, he is in general a better keeper than what he showed in this test match. I Think at least one of those drops, the one late on the first day. I don't think in a way is exactly. I mean, it obviously is a keeping error because he's a wiki and he's made the catch, but it's not, he hasn't dropped that because he's a bad wiki, but he's dropped it because it's a brain fade. It's the same as like a, uh, you know, o- almost like a batter who has a, like a, a, a mix up run out that's like a horrible mistake, but it's not like a, that uh, you wouldn't use that to say they're a bad batter. It's just like, you know, it, like it's, you know, their mind switched off for a second and that's what's happened. Uh, but yeah, but Butter as a batter, I feel like some of the criticism as well is because, it is because of how good a wide ball player. He is, and he's not as good a test cricketer as he is a white ball player. I mean, few test cricketers are as good at test cricket as Josh Butler is at white ball cricket. Uh, but that then means that if you look at the test cricketer he actually is, it's, it's, not, it's not that bad on the whole, basically. Like, if you look, since it was recalled to the test side in, what, uh, 2018, from then until now, he averages like 34, which is not great. But by England standards, it's the third best after Stokes and Root by a reasonable distance. Uh, I think having a it would be good. I mean, it's, I think it's a fair point to say that he struggles with uh, sort of uh, a blank canvas and kind of like an open-ended situation. He is better when there's a specific challenge set in front of him. But as a wicketkeeper at number seven, you will often have kind of specific challenges put in front of you. So it's not the it's it's, it's not the biggest thing that I mean. He, I think it's, it's interesting because he was picked to be the guy who would come in when it was 250 for five and taken 500, which is obviously a very very optimistic plan because England are never. 350 for, for five, and they've kind of lucked out in that I actually think he is quite good when England are actually 150 for five and he has to figure out what is the best way to adapt. He's not, I'm not saying he's brilliant at it, I'm not saying he's a brilliant test player, but I think that he isn't, he's quite a long way from being the issue with this England team, albeit he did contribute to the defeat in this test match because of the drop catches. And there are better keepers out there for sure, but I think that Josh Butler, even just as a batter, is one of the better ones that England have right now, even if that's not if that's not saying very much.
2: I found it quite interesting um, watching this innings. It kind of reminded me, in, in a really weird sort of contrasting way, of the the knock he played against Pakistan last year at Old Trafford. The I think 70 old or something that basically won the game in the fourth innings. I mean, the obvious comparison was because he was building a partnership with Chris Works. but on that occasion he was obviously in such a he was in such a bad run of form um, and the pitch was turning, Yasha Shah was, you know, bowling into the rough, that he kind of set his mind and he decided, I'm just, I'm going to go for it. And so he played, you know, one of his most attacking innings, Test cricket, he swept well, he just, he kind of went for it. And this innings was kind of, in a way, quite similar. He knew what he had to do. He knew he had to just block out the day. There was a clear, um, there was a clear way he had to go about it. Um, And so I think that clarity of mind, knowing the situation kind of helped him today and um, which is why he produced you know his second longest test innings he knew exactly um what 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 was kind of required from him i think the the problem he probably has sometimes is he's kind of caught in between you know the expectations of of him as this kind of aggressor who can take that white ball mode into red ball mode and then caught between the idea of which he which he said repeatedly that he rec- knows that you can't just do that, that you have to bat properly. You have to be aware of your off stump, but then you can also see him clearly struggling with that at times because he's he's prodding at balls outside off stump and that's how he's kind of got out of this whole series. Um, so it's just, a, yeah, it's just a, he's still such a, I mean, the, you know, what Joe said about this kind of test summing up where he is as a test cricketer, the fact that we finished his test match, he's played this innings and you still don't really understand what he's, he is as a test cricketer kind of sums it up as
0: well. Mm. What what I would say as well, that a lot of people kind of point to Ben Folk's out the side and I'm a m- massive fan of Ben Folk's, but I, I don't think Ben Folk's averages much more than 34 over a three-year period in the same way that, that Butler has. And I don't think Butler's keeping is actually quite as bad as people make it out to be as well. I mean, the, the stats going around that he he takes more, uh, I think he takes about 90% of the chances that come to him, which is above the the global average real wicketkeeper in Test cricket over the last few years. So I think that that is worth saying as well. Joe, one of the more memorable sections of the game was the sight of Ollie Robinson bowling off spin, and then Doward Milan and Joe Root taking four second innings wickets between them. Um, it's easy for us to say in hindsight, but given how the pitch played, did England get the make-up of the side slightly wrong? Um, like like in Brisbane, not going with a the pitch they were confronted with really and then not picking Jack Leach... Um, after what thirteen overs of, of carnage at Brisbane, do, do you, you can understand why England went the way they did? They got four, they got five quicks who, who they backed to do well in these conditions, and Leach didn't go well in Brisbane. But do you think England should have backed Leach here, or is that just speaking with the benefit of hindsight? Really?
4: Um,
3: well, I think it is speaking with the benefit of hindsight. Well, it definitely is speaking with benefit of hindsight. But, uh, you know, it almost goes about saying if England had a spinner that they trusted, then they should have played at Adelaide. The problem is they shouldn't have played him in the Gabba. He got hit around, and now they don't have enough faith in him to pick him when they should. And, and this is a very difficult situation to get off. I didn't. I wouldn't have picked Leach before for this test. Um, for that reason, I just think there was too much risk that Australia would knock him out of the attack. Um, and I thought Root could just do a job. And you know that's that sort of just about played out. My concern, my main um, gripe with the team, or. I suppose so great with this team was that Mark Wood didn't play, and i just I just think that was crazy and I, I, I think that that is not with the benefit of hindsight. I think that was what most people were saying on as soon as they announced that 12 man squad and Wood wasn't in it, I think a lot of people, even though we all understand Wood's fitness issues and um the fact that he's not going to play five tests in these series, d- despite that, I still think he needed to play this test match, and he would only bowled in in one innings basically in the previous game. Um, and England won, were one nil down with four to play. Now they're two 0 down with three to play, and it's basically gone. Um, so I think you you play the best team that you can at that point, rather than worrying about who you're going to pick for the for the next test. And that really showed that that kind of one pace nature of, of England's attack as as Labuschagne and Warner kind of ground them down. Um, and again, I didn't. They, England definitely bowled too short, and I think. It was interesting in Root's post-match press conference, or sorry, not press conference, his chat with Ali Mitchell on, on BT, that he was critical of of England for bowling too short. And, and then they definitely did. And I thought they were actually really quite poor with the second new ball, Broaden-Anderson, even though Anderson should have had Labashane and obviously Butler dropped that catch. They just didn't get it right. And part of it was the radar was slightly off, which is unusual. But also it seemed to just be the tactics weren't right and that they weren't getting up there enough. But for Root to then say afterwards that England weren't bowling full enough is quite interesting, I think. Because my take on that, I don't know what you guys thought, was that he was saying he wasn't saying we got our tactics wrong. He was suggesting that the bowlers weren't following the advice that was given, which is an interesting one. If that is the case, are, are, are the bowlers deliberately not following Root's advice? Are they not getting right? Are they not bowling as in the way that they want to? Is it just a case of being a bit rusty? Because the Root is telling his bowlers to do one thing and they're doing another, that is quite a, a, an issue with your captain. Um, and, you know, there's always this dynamic. Cook had the same thing. Broad and Anderson have got so many test wickets, got so much weight behind them that it's hard to tell them, no, well, time you're doing this wrong. But but it was quite clear to, certainly, and people who know a lot more about these things, the commentators were, were tearing their hair out because they needed to just pitch it up. And, and when they did, they started to take wickets. And when Australia did, they took wickets. So that's a real question mark over Root's captaincy and and a kind of challenge to him for the rest of the series. Is he going to be able to get his bowlers to do what he wants or is he going to take a step back and essentially let the game flow even though it's not going in the direction that he wants it to?
0: There, there are conflicting messages coming out there as well because um, Anderson and Broad have, have had limited but some success in Australia by bowling dry, but, uh, by not giving many runs away. And England have talked in the past about playing attritional cricket. And you can kind of see how, how that could work. But then Root seems to be saying something quite different. He, he wants he seems to want his bowlers to pitch up. Ben, you, you were saying that you do see the merit in Anderson in particular, bowling slightly back of length. He, he has had quite a lot of success in Australia doing that in the past and also having them caught their catches. You could see Australia being bowled out for about 350 instead of 450. And then you'd expect a, a decent batting side to, to put up a similar total in response.
1: Yeah, that, that's kind of what I felt even at the end of, of day one when England were getting quite a lot of criticism. I did, I did understand the criticism to an extent because, uh, you know, England were bowling a bit too short. They, they'd shot themselves in the foot a bit because they'd dropped those catches. Uh, it, it could have been a very different story with Australia sort of like 220 for four or five rather than 220 for two. And then you are saying that's England's day. But then also I think you do see T, like I mean, it was 225, wasn't 325, or well, was 220 for 2 rather than 320 for 2, which is sort of the story we've been more used to in a way from playing Test cricket in Australia. And you do see not that infrequently 220 for 2 turning into 350 all out. That would actually almost quite an England thing to do, wouldn't it? To have like quite a, a good day with the bat uh, and then sort of feel pretty tough for yourself. Actually, they're not making not enough, and then the other teammate loads. that. That's kind of. And then, as, as you kind of said early on, sometimes when you're up against. Uh, you know, a team that has Labashain, Smith and Warner in it, Uh, you are going to bowl dry, bowl pretty well, and they are still going to make 500 because those are three, like, great test batters. And on those occasions, then you kind of settle for the draw. You think, okay, we've restricted them to just under 500 in a little bit under two days. We need to bat okay here, and we'll get out with the draw reasonably comfortably. But England batted awfully on day three. It was the, the... the worst day of the series by a distance for them, I think, because there was kind of there was no real mitigation there. It was it was not a difficult pitch to bat on. Australia were missing uh, two their two two of their best bowlers, uh, their two best bowlers, uh, and they had Root and Melanie shown them the way to do it, and they still kind of threw it away. That's why that was so bad, because I think in a bold, okay, and it on another day might have been enough to set up a possible chance for win, and should have been enough to set up a reasonable comfortable draw. And it wasn't on on the leech thing. Um, I think it's probably it's probably partly down to just to lack of faith. And obviously, if England had, you know, Shane Warne or Graham Swan, they would have picked him. and They pick him every time. But I think it is also due to this this weird sort of fascination and misunderstanding England have of how the pink ball works and of pink ball tests in general. I mean, we saw that in in India as well when they picked uh, picked all the seamers and then got beaten in two days with Joe Root taking five for eight. That they kind of they pick a team for pink ball tests to bowl you know, 20 minutes with a new ball under lights, forgetting that that's like, like 10% of, of the whole test match. I mean, I think one of the things we discussed in the pod is that it would need to come down to how the pitch looked, because you do sometimes get with these pink ball tests that they leave a bit more grass on it, and then you wonder if you're heading towards a shorn game. But this pitch never looked like that. Uh, and that's where you think, okay, Nathan Nine has a good record in pink ball test match, got a good record at Adelaide. Spinner's in general have a good record at Adelaide. Uh, and they picked Leach in that squad as well in that 12 man squad just before the, uh, uh, just before the team was announced. Uh, and so it says to me that like, they kind of did just get the sort of like, almost like a cartoon character uh, when they see like a, you know, a, a pie on a shelf, they're sort of like the dollar signs start running their eyes and their tongue starts hanging out whatever. this, cause they see a pink ball and lies and they think, right, that's it. We just, uh, just pick all, all five seamers and let it just like hoop away, which is like, like a very like outdated understanding of how the pink ball actually functions and they've been, like it's hurt them before this year, and they've still made basically the same mistake, I think, uh, by not picking a spinner at Adelaide, which is where you pick spinner, I guess. I don't
3: but Ben, if that is the case, how can that possibly happen given the level, level analysis, the, the team they have around them, the, the data they have at their disposal? How, if that is genuinely the case, how can they keep getting that kind of stuff wrong?
1: Yeah, it's a good, it's a good question. I mean, in terms of the data, there was a good, good piece by Crick uh, Visit's Ben Jones on how the pink ball in Australia generally functions, and it's, it's pretty clear that you get a bit more swing than the red kookaburra ball for the first 15 overs, and actually a lot less swing, so that in general it's the same amount of swing, and the seam movement is like, the seam movement is a little bit more than the red kookaburra, so in general it's a little bit more helpful for the seamers, but not much more, but that's what the data says, and it also says that under lights, not that many more wickets, no more wickets fall than usual, uh, the bowlers are average more than usual, doesn't move more than usual, that's kind of just like, something just said to get excited about, and I guess the other way you can sort of look at it is that like, England sort of had to play Broad and Anderson because they're Broad and Anderson, and because of like partly because they're two brilliant bowlers, but also partly of because of the hold they have over the team. And all of a sudden, when you're looking at that squad they've picked, then you've got to pick Robinson, who was your best bowler in the first test, and you've got to pick Wordscue, you need someone to bat at number eight, and then you end up leaving out Leach by default. Whereas actually, like, fine, you leave Stuart Broad out two tests in a row, but you pick a spinner because you don't need four very similar bowlers. To, to, because, because it might swing under lights basically Like I, I don't know how they made that mistake but I think one thing that has been shown in the series is that England have spoken a lot about their plans but maybe they've planned for a very specific thing and as soon as a few things have kind of acted to main, that mean those plans have gone awry that they've then not known how to adjust those plans on the hoof I guess
2: it just seems like they're not very good at improvising um, the, the wood thing that, that Joe mentioned right at the start I mean that 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 sounds like a plan you make, you know, before any cricket's played. But surely, once you're one nil down in an Asher series as well, and you know that once you're one nil down, um, at, and and with Australia, you know, they already have the urn and that kind of thing. And now, after going two nil up, they're just they're a draw away from from you know, um, retaining it. It, it, it just and that that was that was probably the most baffling thing. I kind of. I didn't have too many problems with uh, England selection in the first test, but the the wood one f- for this one has just made um, is just the one that that I I've, I've struggled with the most. I think I think the the straight top would be would be wokes, but then picking wokes as well, you can kind of see what they're thinking. They're thinking about the extra batting security and that kind of I don't know. It just it just kind of shows your sort of mindset when. You are just thinking, oh, you know, we kind of need Chris Wokes at number eight, which kind of tells you about the problems that are going on in the batting beforehand.
0: Joe, can I ask you about Chris Wokes? A lot of us expected him to do better this time around in Australia, albeit from a small sample side. He'd look to have improved um, as a bowler away from home using the Cooker uh, over, over the last couple of years. He, he bowls at pretty good pace, probably the quickest of the England bowlers. Uh, on show at Adelaide. He, he's pretty accurate, gets the ball to nip around a bit. Why do you think it's not quite happened for him this series?
3: Yes, yeah, it's, it's a real head scratch. I mean, Butch said on this show, right at the start, he'd have Wokes above Anderson. Uh, I think he was basically saying he'd, p- he'd pick him above all of England's seamers. And I think there was a sort of general agreement, obviously bolstered by the fact that he can actually bat, which the rest of England's tail can't. Um, he looked like the smart pick, but he just, and he's bold. Tidily enough. I mean he, he's certainly he's not gone around the park. Um, but he just hasn't really looked like taking wickets. There was that genuine edge of what Labochane in the in the first test, um, where you kind of just feel like oh, maybe that goes to hands and things things fall fall differently. But what he took one tail end wicket across two innings to Adelaide. Um he did get he was obviously not taking the new ball, but he did get a chance to to bowl under lights in some in theory favourable conditions. So it was all there for him, but it's just there's it just seems to be a kind of a bit of a lack of zip, which it's hard to kind of put your finger on. Really, I would say he was also a bit guilty of bowling a little bit too short, um, and perhaps again that was falling into that he's so intent on bowling dry and not letting Australia get away that he didn't actually do the thing that makes him most dangerous and, and why you want him in the side in the first place, which is to get get the ball pitched up and moving away, and getting the slip cordon into, into action. Not that they're likely to catch it at the moment, which is another... That was... A, <laughs> amongst all of this, they were touching on this on the BT coverage that, obviously, the batting and bowling isn't going great, but actually, before we even get to that discussion, there are so many basics that England are just getting wrong, which just aren't even giving themselves a chance. Like, not being able to keep your foot behind the line and bowling as many no-balls as they have. The, uh, obviously, the catching has been horrendous, Uh, shown up by the fact that Australia's has been brilliant. Um, And then even like the ground fielding, England's ground fielding is sloppy. And I just, this isn't a defence, it's it's just the reality. If you look down that England side, it is not a good fielding team. I mean, it hasn't been for a while now, but it is not a particularly athletic lineup. Um, And it's really been shown up by Australia in this series so far. There's a a gaping chasm between the kind of athleticism of the Australian side and, and the English side in the field. One of the other
2: things, just like basic things that you notice was like catchers just kept on dropping short, and you you kind of think even i mean it was made what the the point was made on commentary as well, but it just seems like a kind of kind of an obvious one where it's just like can you not just move in a bit closer um and it's yeah, it just seems like they've just they, they weren't adapting to that
1: the point on on the basics is a really, really good one, I think it's actually. One that kind of, in, in a way, I mean, obviously people talk about the no balls and about the drop catches, but just overall with this England team, you, they kind of feel almost under coached in some ways, like the coaching team has spent so long planning, they haven't actually uh, coached them too much. I think if you're looking sort of wide scale at what is, so the, the biggest reason why England are 2-0 down is because their batting hasn't been good enough. And the curious thing about that is that I think, you know, just over a year ago, we were kind of all sitting here saying that England had the makings of a a pretty good test batting lineup. You know, they had a Sibley bat time. They had Burns, who sort of been around the mill and was looking like he'd crack at test cricket. They had Crawley and Pope, to the most exciting young bat in the world. And those players have all uh, gone backwards. There are a couple of things, I guess, outside of coaching and mitigation that have worked against that. The India tour, I guess, uh, messed them up a bit, just in terms of, you know, they had to find a completely new way to bat, different to how they'd done before. And then all of a sudden, a lot of them were kind of fighting for their places or fighting to keep their averages above 30. But I think you still have to look at like why aren't any of England's batters getting better in the Test setup? Like they're they getting into it into the setup through good pawns and county cricket, looking like the part for a bit, and then getting worse. And I don't think it's just because they're being worked out. Like Pope, we've said basically like for quite a long time that he, he looks frantic every time he comes out to bat, and yet that's still the case. And obviously that's a bit on Pope, but like that's also down to the coaches right? And like Sibley looked like a player who had a game plan last year, who was uh, content to sort of bat time and, and, and bat long, and then was getting a bit of stick for that, even though he was playing pretty well, say, against New Zealand. He got that really slow 60-odd to save a test match, uh, but then looked like he wasn't so happy doing that anymore. And is that a coaching thing, or are the coaches not giving the right positive reinforcement? I don't know, but it just... It, it, it feels like it, the, England are losing because their players aren't as good as Australia's, but... Their players are getting worse, and I don't really understand why. And I don't think we've heard enough from the coaches about what they're doing about why those players aren't getting any better. Basically, they're kind of just. Still, so would like to say he gives he gives a player one test too many and then drops them, but it doesn't it almost does feel like they're actually helping them work out in between those times. Like uh, like, so I'm going on a bit a bit of ramble now, but you even go back even further than that to when uh, so when Rory Burns uh, was fighting for his place at the start of the 2019 Ashes, right, and this, and I think this is this is a general thing about how little coaching, at, proper coaching, actually happens at the top level. Uh, he went back to Surrey to fix his game out, didn't he? He, he didn't go to an England coach. He goes back to his uh, to his county side and then does some actual technical work there, and then goes and has a really good Ashes series. I don't think you hear that much about a player who you know goes to the England setup. Talks to an England coach and is like, "Yeah, now now my game's clicked. I've worked out this technical thing, and now I am going to be batting better." That doesn't happen in the England setup. It feels like
0: I completely get all that, um, but they they must they spend so many hours netting, and they have coaches there. They they must be talking about technical stuff when guys aren't scoring runs. Um, before we get to Australia, we have we've had quite a few questions uh, that, that are kind of on that on that point. Ed Ed asks, "Is the guy from Whiplash available to be England's batting coach?" He says. Uh, it seems to me that Graham Thorpe needs a huge amount of stick. He's presided uh, over one of the limpest areas of English batting. Ryan asked, so when England inevitably lose the Ashes, again in Australia, probably 4-0, 4-1 or 5-0, who carries a can for it and loses their job? Is it Tom Harrison? Is it Chris Silwood? Is it Joe Root? All of the above. Joe, I kind of think, is is it is it as simple as the coaches aren't getting it right? Or is it just that England's players are just miles off what Australia have at the moment? Silwood and Root are coming under a lot of criticism at the moment, but would another coach-captain combination be be able to achieve much more if we had better batting coaches? Would that really make that much of a difference?
3: Uh, well, first of all, Ed, uh, thanks to Ed for sending that question about Whiplash because embarrassingly, I hadn't actually seen the film and so didn't get the cultural reference. So I went and watched it on Saturday night. It was one of the best films I've ever watched. So thank you, Ed. That was, um, that was definitely overdue. Um, it's odd, isn't it? Because... Graham Thorpe, I think, is hugely respected. He obviously knows batting inside out. The players think he's fantastic. If Butch was here, I'm sure he would say Thorpe is a, a master technician. I, I wonder if it's more to do with the kind of philosophy around coaching at the top level, where it very much seems to be: if they're good enough to get to this stage, then you sort of leave them to their own devices, and and you just you're sort of almost there to kind of encourage them and and be more of a kind of mental coach than a technical one. And that seems to be what a lot of the players enjoy and think they respond well to. But, and, you know, if it's going well, then fine, absolutely leave them to it. But at what point do you say, this is not working? Because I think that point passed a long time ago. Uh, And I think we all are in kind of general agreement here. And it's not like, it's interesting with... Usually at this point in the ashes, we would get floods of emails from people with loads of new names that should be in the side. And we haven't really had that. I think Jake Libby got thrown out there by one listener. But, you know, that would be a real punt based on his record. So if, we, if we're kind of saying, yes, these are the best players, maybe one or two changes, then they've got to be properly coached. They've got to be the issues they have need to be worked out. They can't just be left to figure them out themselves or, or hope they come good. Uh, and it's not just technical stuff. I think Ben on Pope is is right. The fact that he's still into however many tests he's played, he still looks frantic like he's walking out there on his debut. The coaches have to take some responsibility for that. Graham Thorpe was such a cool-headed batter and seems to know Pope really well. I, I can't work out how he hasn't had more influence on on letting Pope relax into his innings. And Obviously, players have to take some responsibility, but... So, do the coaches? Because if they don't take some responsibility, then what's the point in having them there in the first place?
1: I think it's especially the case with this England side and with the kind of the project they sort of set themselves. Like, if you remember back to that New Zealand series in 2019 where they picked that that very young squad, they had what, seven players under the age of 24? Like, often, if you're, you know, I guess the normal way of selection would be that, you know, a batter has, you know, six or seven really good years in counter cricket and they have a really, really good year, they get picked. And then you need to kind of back them to do the, what they've been doing in counter cricket to then. Uh, try and replicate that in test cricket. And they're like, you know, 26, 27, and you hope you can get some good years out of them in that way. But with this England team, they picked some very, very young players who were kind of at the start of their careers so they kind of identified as these guys who have sort of kind of got something special, which can help them to to, to kind of to, to crack test cricket. But that's always going to be a group of players that will need a lot more shaping. Like I think sometimes that, where that approach, you don't want, you know, loads of voices saying... You need to be doing this. No, you need to be doing this. You need to get your front foot here. No, it's your back foot that's a problem, sort of thing. But uh, and, and and sometimes you do just need a bit of encouragement to say, go out and do this. But with this set of players, I think they were always going to need a bit more uh, hands-on stuff just because of the stage of their careers they were at. Basically, like they hadn't they hadn't yet properly cracked first-class cricket. You know, they didn't have loads of first-class hundreds and first-class runs to, to fall back on. They hadn't been in loads of different situations. They hadn't been in anything like Test cricket before. And that so it's even more strange that they didn't sort of say like properly take this group players and and mold them instead they kind of just yeah just let them sort of stagnate essentially
3: So and just we're going back a bit here but and i don't want to jump on the sort of anti-silver brigade too much at this point we've got another three tests to go for all that but it does seem extraordinary and this isn't with the benefit of hindsight i think we all said this at the time that Silverwood was chosen above Gary Kirsten if you think of all the things we're, we're talking about here how useful Gary Kirsten would be to this setup and I know apparently he didn't present as well as Silverwood Well, just look at his CV and there was even some suggestions that he wasn't prepared to do the kind of the whole thing well is that a problem I think increasingly there should be a Red Bull head coach and a White Bull head coach anyway go back to how we had it before when it perhaps didn't make sense but with the schedule and the separation of players now I think it does what an asset Gary Kirsten would be to this, to this batting unit right now. And just as a head coach, I mean, we know Milan goes to Kirsten every winter to, to work on his technique to improve his game. Well, Milan seems to be going pretty well, certainly in comparison to the rest of them. That looked like a bad appointment at the time. It looks worse as every day goes by uh, to employ, employ your... Remember, he wasn't even assistant coach. They've employed their bowling coach as their head coach and now their chief selector. Uh, it's all a bit bonkers. I thought um, just
2: on your on the point that's been made about that um, is sort of starting off quite well in this test side. And then the more time they spent, spend in it, they're kind of, you don't really know where their game's going. It's quite, perhaps it's quite telling, you know, push aside Root, who's obviously a freak. Um, it's, it's quite telling that, that Milan um, was basically out of this test set up three years and he's come in and he's kind of looked the part immediately. Uh, and that's kind of almost a nice sort of point of comparison to the guys who've kind of been in it daily two years and, and kind of where their game's going. Whereas Milan, obviously a level of that is his experience. He's been around, he's one of the older guys. He's not, you know, he's different in the stage of his career to an Ollie Pope or a, or a Zach Crawley or a Dom Sibley. Um, but, you know, I think that is, that's quite interesting that he's he's just not been there for three years and he, he comes in and he kind of looks the part immediately and he's, you know it's it's almost interesting to see now where does his game go? Does he keep improving or does he kind of follow the similar pattern that we keep on seeing where when guys come in, they they kind of they've made some runs in carry cricket, they immediately score in those runs and then suddenly they just begin to stagnate and it's kind of the same thing over and over again where they they don't have a they don't have a sort of phase where they sort of plummet a bit but then manage to fix their game in that setup. They have to kind of leave it altogether.
0: Um, Joe, just quickly on Ollie Pope again. Do you think he's the most in danger of losing his spot from that top seven? A couple of Paul dismissals again, two low scores again. Um, but but who, if if he if he does drop out, who comes in for him? England not exactly sport for choice there. Dan Lawrence averages twenty seven in Test cricket, best even less than that over the last three years. There've been reports today that a few players who are involved with the BBL at the moment could be added to the squad soon. So that Sakima Mood. Uh, James Vince Ben Duckett
3: Yeah England's 11 for the Sydney test could look uh, extraordinary look more like their kind of B team for the T20. Um yeah I think Pope is the most uh, under threat of that top 7 um you know take your pick in terms of runs scored but I think his the manner of his dismissals his sort of demeanor at the crease um I think he I think he is under threat and I've I've been a big supporter of Ollie Pope but I think I probably would drop him for the next test I think. It it looks like he's so desperate to succeed that it's just being channeled in all the wrong ways. And and I don't think that's gonna get any better over the course of a series. I think that could get worse in quite a damaging way. So I would I would take him out of the firing line for now. And then I guess you're looking at you're looking at Lawrence or Besto really for that spot. Um the question is, I mean, Besto obviously has the, the Ashes hundred in Perth, which everyone is is knows knows what full well he did that it's been talked about a lot but that was a long time ago do dan lawrence's mountain of runs for the lions in australia two years ago have more currency um i would be tempted to look at lawrence just because Besto has got a track record of of failure in test cricket now in a way that lawrence is just starting up and has shown glimmers and he's looks like he's got the kind of at least the attitude for it and we haven't yet seen if he's got the got the game for test cricket that being said i'm sure they would if they do drop hope, which I think they probably will on balance. I'd be amazed if they don't go for best. I think they will want that extra experience, even though the the recent record is poor. Um, and just as a, as a sort of sidebar, um, talking about that very poor fielding side, best, I would certainly add, add a lot to that in England's 11. Not that you should be picking your side on (laughs) based on their fielding, but you know, it is a, is an added little benefit, um, The interesting one is Burns, because I have to be honest, you guys can tell me, I didn't see his 30 live. I only saw the highlights. And it looked like he got a few nice shots away, but I I didn't know what happened either side of those. But I mean, Taha, you saw every ball. Was he looking more confident at the crease, or was there a few nice shots in amongst some um, sort of jumpiness?
2: Yeah, it was weird, because obviously after the first innings, I kind of thought, I can't see a way back for Burns for the next test. I think they'd have to kind of get rid of him and... Maybe his, Hamid is the kind of the opener keeps the spot, um, but then in in that um, in that second innings, Burns kind of you could tell that he'd kind of he was kind of adapting a bit. He was starting to leave the ball a bit more. He was sort of you know initially in the series he's kind of just he's looked to play, and there was a bit more discipline to it. Um, and he was kind of kind of finding his method. Obviously, with Burns, you never kind of you never really understand where he's at with his game because obviously because of the technique. Um but I thought the 34 was probably kind of enough to suggest there's something there to work with, whereas the three innings before that, you were kind of like he's struggling here not just with the angles that Stark's creating, but like against Cummins as well. It's just the extra bounce. He just he's not reacting to it in a way that suggests that he's gonna have any success. Whereas that 34 offered a little bit of something. Um, and in this kind of in the context of England, the series of 34 is quite a big score. Um, So I think he's probably, I'd be kind of surprised if they dropped him, basically. He's also the kind of senior opener, right? He's the kind of one they've backed for so long and it's almost like you want to give him just that extra chance. Um, So I think he'll he'll still be all right. Um, I'm not sure about, I wonder if they, they must surely be thinking about Crawley as well. I mean, they, you know, he's, Obviously, been talked about uh, as a guy who kind of would fit in these conditions, and you can kind of see it. But um, uh, Hamid is Hamid is curious because he, you know, he he played quite well in that first test, I thought. Um, and that just it was just it's weird because you're you're looking at the way he got out in the in the first innings of this test, and it's just it's just a bad bad shot rather than any sort of real technical failure, and you're kind of wondering if he can just. If it is just more of a mental thing, then then you keep him in. Um, so I don't know, but I think, yeah, I'd be. I, I think I think Burns will Burns will keep a spot, but I don't know if they're they're pushing really for for Crawley um, over Hamid. That would be kind of that looks like that might be the judgment call.
0: I think Burns is probably safe. He's 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 had such a strange England career where he's had quite a few periods now where he's looked horrendous, but he kind of once he gets going, he does look quite fluid, as you said, Joe. That. Actually, once he got through that early period on, in the second innings, he actually looked, he actually looked pretty good. Um, on on Hamid, it's interesting. Hamid now, Hamid basically averages the same since his comeback as Sibley did this year, which I think is it's quite interesting. How how easy a ride Hamid does get, partly because of how amazing the comeback story was and how elegant he looks at the crease. But I think. To me, Taha, I think that first innings dismissal is not an aberration for for Hamid. I think he he does not hit bad balls well enough compared to the average test bats batter. Um, I think when he bats particularly slowly, I think part a lot of that is he he blocks bad balls that other players hit away for four. Uh, that 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 was a very strange shot. Um, it was a, it was a half volley that he, he should have hit hit straight, but he hit it horribly across the line. And I'm just imagining if Dom Sibley played that shot imagine how, how many column inches are spent on Sibley's weird weird technique. I think Hamid has had quite an easy ride and when he scores a gritty twenty five, people get more excited than when Sibley might do that. And I think that's partly because he look Hamid does look really good when he scores a gritty twenty five, but Sibley or Burns looks particularly ugly when they when they do so. Let's get Butch's thoughts on the on the second test. Um Butch, you were adamant from day one of the Adelaide test that England should have gone in with a spinner a lot of people thought that after how Jack Leach went at Brisbane, 13 overs for hundred odd, that England should take him out of the firing line. What, why do you think, why did you think throughout the whole test that England got that call wrong?
4: <laughs> well, I mean, we had Ollie Robinson bowling off spin for a start. One of our five seamers was bowling spin. Um, oh man, look, there's, there's, a, there's a template for, for playing cricket in Australia. Um, and it pretty much 100% includes playing a spin bowler. Um, you know, how often do we hear about commentators or players or captains moaning about what happens to the Cookaburra ball, how flat things get, um, how difficult it is to kind of make the ball move off the seam or through the air. Um, and yet we played five bowlers who re- rely upon movement off the seam and through the air and didn't pick a spinner. I mean, it's just, it's just absolutely mental. I mean, it hasn't changed. You know, the cricket in yeah, okay. There's there's day-night Test matches, which, by the way, Australia win a hundred percent of. So, it kind of wasn't the big this big chance that that people were saying we had of getting into the Test series was was by having a day-night Test match, because Australia happened to win all of theirs at home, as well. Um, but nothing else has changed. Adelaide Adelaide Oval still flat. You still have to you still have to bowl impact overs. Of pace, um, keep things very tight in order to wheedle out um, batsmen, um, although not so much in our first innings, but definitely in the second one. Um, And you need the spinner to be able to play a part as a wicket taker and and somebody that keeps lid on scoring. And that's just just a fact. There's no... (laughs) Nothing has changed to make that not a fact. And it will be the same at Melbourne, um, Sydney for sure. Um, even tasmania so it's just i don't know i'm i am i am kind of fed up with talking about it and 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 that's not being rude to you that's just i've just had enough
0: <laughs> um on I, I guess mark wood's exclusion was interesting i get that england want to keep him fresh etc and make sure that he doesn't break down but england are one nil down with four tests to go it was a week, pretty much, between his last serious bowl and the first day at Adelaide. Um, and England end up picking four quite samey bowlers, who uh, all of whom kind of prefer bowling the new ball. And England almost prepared for this Test match with the idea: is okay, we're going to make sure that we, we 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 pick a side that will make the most of the new pink ball on the lights. But that's only what ten to twenty percent of, of of a Test match. Yeah, you know? I mean England.
4: England template for winning for winning series against Australia is actually not 10-11, but it's also it's actually two thousand five. You know, your, your spinner might not be the, might not be Shane Warne, right? Might not be um, Anil Kumble or somebody like that. But the spinner has a, a role to play, and then your bowling attack needs to uh, needs to consist of guys who are good with the with the new ball, um, i.e., Matthew Hoggard, brilliant swing bowler with the new ball or ball at home. Um, and away from home for that matter. Um then you've got your old ball specialists in Jones and Flintoff. Um and then you know somebody of extreme pace and bounce in, in Harmson. Uh and uh, and you have the spin bowler to bowl to 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 bowl the overs where it is completely unconducive for the seamers to have the ball in their hand. Because I'm all for sort of resting the bowlers, but I quite I'd quite like to be able to do it whilst the game is in progress. Not not when you not not just have them sit out, have your have your most likely impact players sit out of the game. But actually have them be able to rest while the game is in progress. And that is what the spinner allows you to do. Spinner, a good spinner, or you know, somebody somebody that's got a bit of confidence in themselves. And of course that's not Jack Leach. But again, you know, again, I'm tired till I'm blue in the face talking about what they could and should have done with Jack Leach during the summer in order either to know that he could do that job or to have left him out and picked somebody else. Mm. Um, But just to not play a spin bowler is just, it's just, it's mental. And, you know, and, and the thing is, we're talking about that. And the facts of the matter are that even if we had played the right sort of bowling attack, not being able to score any runs in the first innings doomed us anyway. So it's kind of, it's kind of moot, but but I know you've asked me that because it's one of my it's one of my favourite hobby horses. So there we go.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean you're right about it being moot. If you get bowled out for not many in the first innings, especially after having the platform that Root and once again gave England, you're not going to win many Test matches. Um, and I wanted to ask you on the batting because I think people are broadly accepting that this is roughly the the group of England's best batters they have at the moment, and a lot of them have shown promise at various points their test career joe root ben stokes aside you know burt burns has got ashes 100 he's got 200 against new zealand the number one or number two best side in the world at the moment uh ollie pope had that brilliant series in south africa um wh- what why do you think um those players haven't really taken the next step in their development of test cricketers and if anything have regressed and do you think that the coaching staff has, has a bigger role to play, and I was wondering that when you were playing for England, how how closely did you work with the coaches when you were going through Lena Lena Trots and, um, yeah, how 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 does that work? How does that kind of dynamic work?
4: Um, I'd work uh, the 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 sort of the tweaks to technique and, and whatever would always be done outside of outside of tours or outside of um series at home. You try not to leave yourself in a position where you are having to make wholesale adjustments um, whilst the series was in play, because you you know you're supposed to be thinking about and concentrating on watching the ball and making runs. So it's very difficult to also add technical changes to that equation as well. Um, so so very little really. Um, I don't. As to why why they don't seem to be getting any better, I think potentially it's because. There's not a lot of changing going on. Um, you look at somebody like Steve Smith or even minus Lavachain. Two guys who kind of uh, came into the, well, Lavachain not so much, but Smith in particular came into the game, into Test Cricket with a certain sort of idiosyncratic te- technique. And it's still idiosyncratic, by the way. But he had a taste of it. And then on the one and then once he was out of the side, went away and, and worked really hard to make a few fundamental changes in order to, to bed in um, some things that would make him more consistent at a test match level. Um, and I, and I, I don't really, I don't see that a lot in, in English players. Um, I didn't see it a massive amount while I, while I was playing. I mean, you know, I, I, I bring this up simply because I had two careers as an England player. One where I averaged 25 and another where I averaged 40. And the, and the second one was because I made fundamental changes in order to be more consistent at a test match level. It wasn't anything to do with, you know, um, making more runs in, in the county game. I could make runs in the county game. It was doing things that made it more likely that I would be consistent um, playing the test matches.
0: And you did that away from playing for England? And you did that playing when you weren't playing for England? You didn't do that mid-series or anything? That well, was...
4: I, I was... No, no, I was left out. I, was, I had a year... Had a year or year and a half out of the out of the England team, Um, you know, and got and only got picked back in really because um, because of uh, injuries and and you know a bit of luck really. But when but once I got back in, I had I had made those changes to the way that I to work to everything really to my stance, grip, backlift, all of those types of things, because because what I what I did before wasn't working. So you know that's that's basically it, isn't it? If you keep Doing the same thing that you've always done without making any real adjustments you're, you're unlikely to become more consistent mm. and, and i'm not saying that that's what I'm not saying that's what's happened with the England guys at the moment. I think that they're massively under the cosh um, confidence has a huge part to play in all of that if you, if you haven't if you're sort of getting dismissed and, and the batting line up has collapses on a regular basis there's always that sort of specter in the dressing room and it, and it erodes confidence. But I do think that there are, you know, there are times when you can look at what you do and think to yourself, okay. But Dom Sibley might, might, is doing that at the moment. You know, he's got a lot of flack for not going on an a tour, but staying home and trying to do something um, to to sort of adjust his technique to make him more successful at the highest level. Um, and I hope it works out for him. And I th- and I think players need to do that. All players need to do that.
0: It's interesting. You, you don't think that actually in the past. Coaches have actually been responsible for for players making improvements mid-series. That that often that's it's not really how it works. But it no,
4: right. that's not. That's never. That's never really how it works. I mean, the the guys you know will will take time to work with with, with people at Loughborough and things like that. I'm sure that there are camps and whatever. But generally speaking, a, a, a professional batter will have somebody at his county or at, you know at home who will who will do. The majority of his work with and then you you know you turn up and the, and the coach's job for the England team is to make observation um and throw a lot of balls really I mean that's kind of what they do uh so uh, I can I understand you know if you've got, if you've got somebody with the title of, of batting coach on the on the trip and bowling coach on the trip the the focus um moves to them when the, when the batters and bowlers are not performing particularly well but um but their job on tours is very, very much maintenance as opposed to sort of fundamentally overhauling things.
0: Hmm. Um, and lastly, I want to get your your thoughts on Rory Burns uh, not taking the first ball for a couple of innings in a row and then taking the first ball again as, you know, someone who's over the batting. How do those conversations work? Because Burns has pretty much opened face to first ball over the entirety of his first class career. He had faced first ball in every single test innings except for ones where there's a night watchman with him. Um, so, a, what did you make of it? And, and b, how how do those conversations work between two openers on on first balls?
4: I don't know actually. I mean, I I, I can't remember. I always took first ball um, when I opened, and obviously it's sort of like the second half of my career. I've I batted three or even four for for Surrey. So. Um, but I always opened when I when I was when I went out first, um, just preference I suppose. Um, so I think I meant, remember having a conversation with Mike Atherton um, in my first test match, asking if he would mind, you know. And he was he was fine about. It. He didn't care one way or the other. So I so my name was always in front of his on the on the team sheet and the, when, when we opened together. But I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's interesting that you would that you would do it. And then uh, be removed from the firing, well, removed from doing it, or or remove yourself from doing it, and then go back to doing it again. Um, I I suppose I wouldn't read too much into it, really. It's just uh, as long as the as the openers have a decent enough relationship, then you can you can fiddle around with that sort of stuff at at your leisure, I suppose. We
0: we should talk about Australia, Tar. I wanted to get your thoughts on Labuschagne and Warner in particular. They England bowled pretty well, if if a bit short on that first day. Um, and yeah, there are a couple of drops of Labuschagne, but they were they were really really good. Warner must be gutted; that he didn't get hundred. That that dismissal was so painful. The entire offside to play with, rank long hop, and picks the only guy in front of square on the offside.
2: Yeah, and the Warner knock was. Are kind of watching david Warden nowadays even in that kind of t20 world cup and and in test cricket now as well he was obviously um england bowl, england bowl, england were really tight with him he really struggled to to kind of get going at the start of his innings like it took him a while to get off the mark after 50 balls i mean he barely had any runs on the board but he's at that kind of sweet spot in that he maybe sort of physically maybe not be in the in the condition he might have been a few years ago he's obviously getting older um but because of the conditions which he's historically always scored runs in and because of experience, he can kind of, he's not the type of guy who's who looks like he's panicking at all. in the fact that he's like got three runs off 50 balls, he kind of knows exactly how he can play it here. The, the ball, you know, the ball might do a bit at the start. Um, and, you know, like, like we talked about the big ball, it might do a bit of extra in the start, but then, then it, then it kind of does nothing in the middle. And so he kind of, got in got in the zone in that period. He kind of went going. And you never with, with other batters you might have thought, ah, oh, this this sort of this pressure where you've you've just not got any runs. You've faced, you know, you've you've batted for a couple of hours, you're just not going anywhere. That would have got to other people, but because of David Warner, because where he is in the game, his level of experience, his record behind him, um, he just didn't panic. And it wasn't, it wasn't like a rem- innings i remember. I can't really even remember a shot from it right now, but it was what David Warner does in Australia. He'll get a big score. It was a 90-something, but it's, it's a big score. Uh Lab Labashain, um was dropped quite a few times. It's probably the and he he was the one who kind of obviously because of his the way he he is animated the crease, he kind of tells you that he's like struggling with the pitch a bit. It's, the ball's kind of popping out of the length and he'll He'll kind of shout about it, won't he, on, on Stunt Mike? And so you could tell that it, it wasn't a straightforward surface for him. He wasn't probably as fluent as he was um in, in the first innings in Brisbane. Um and, and he had his luck. Butler dropped him. Um but I don't know, he just he finds a way, he 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 kind of doesn't, it's hard to really spot a weakness in him when you're watching him in these conditions. He clips off the legs when it's straight. He's always looking to score. He might. He did get bogged down in this innings. It was probably. I think. I think I might be right in saying that it was probably the slowest Test century yet. Um, but he had kind of has all the shots. He is so good when he's leaving. He knows. That's why I almost kind of think he could. He'd be all right if he if he opened in these conditions. He he just has that immaculate judgment. Uh, and yeah, I mean, he's just gonna. He is just going to be the leading run scorer in the series. I think I can't I can't think of anybody anybody else who's going to who's going to who's going to beat him. He's he's excellent. And then Smith did what he did. He's not even you know he's probably not even sixty percent of where he can be, and yet he'll still get a ninety odd. Um, and it's just those three, isn't it? It's as as good as Travis Head has been. Travis Head has been in this series. You you look at those three, um, and they might not even be you know, operating at their highest level. Labochain probably is, but the other two, they're still kind of getting into it after having played in that T20 World Cup. And you just think they're going to score. They're going to get, they, they've got into the 90s now. They're going to score hundreds in the series. It's just hard, very hard not to envisage that happening.
3: Yeah. And Thomas so picked out kind of the the, the big three there and, and they've obviously been excellent. But I think in general, we need to give Australia a lot of credit. I think Australia are the better side. You look down that lineup; they are the better side. But... um. England have underperformed, but Australia have been really on their game. You just have to look through their team and pretty much to a man, every player has had some kind of impact in this, some kind of positive impact in the series so far after after two tests. And you look down England's lineup and it's only three or four really who have done a thing of note. And that that's impressive so early in a series, um, especially given a lot of them haven't played test cricket for a, a very long time. Even some haven't played Red Bull cricket for a long time. To have come in as hot as they have done Uh, And really just given England no let up, with the exception of the the couple of Milan route partnerships, they've just been all over England. And and whenever there has been an opportunity, they've just absolutely seized it. And uh, yeah, obviously it doesn't come easily to us giving Australia too much credit. But I think um, as much as England have have helped them along the way, Australia have been really impressive so far, much more impressive than I expected them to be, I have to say.
0: And getting better as well, Joe. But um, Jai J- J- Richardson taking five wickets in the second innings in his first test match in, in nearly three years. And, and Cam Green impressing yet again, especially with the absence of Hazelwood and Cummins. I thought he really stepped up and looked like a proper frontline bowler at times.
3: Well, it says it all, doesn't it? That Richardson's just taken a match-winning fire through and I guess probably won't play the next test if, if Hazelwood is is fit. And Cummins obviously will be back. Um, imagine that kind of luxury for- <laughs> For England, um, yeah, they've got, they've got a wealth of, of options. And, you know, talking about um, whether Hamid should stay in, whether Burn should stay in, if they had a player of Kawaja's uh, quality on the bench, they'd absolutely be making a change to that opening spot. But, um, but they don't, and Australia do, and Australia could even, I'm sure they won't do it quite yet. But Harris, obviously, is, is probably the one player who hasn't really had an impact for Australia. They could they could change a winning side. They could actually strengthen a winning side that are already tuning up in the series by bringing in Kawaja. I don't think they'll do that quite yet, but it just shows the the, the depth that they've got um, in comparison to England.
2: The um, the point you make about Green, I think he's just been a bit of a revelation. Really, I, obviously he hasn't really got runs with the bat yet. He got thirty odd when they were getting the declaration, um, but I think every, kind of coming into the series, you know, he's batting at six um, and he's. He obviously started kind of. He, he really had, didn't make an impact with the ball um, in his first test series against India. Didn't take a wicket. He's only started to really get into his rhythm and bowling in in the Sheffield Shield as well. Um, to come in and kind of almost basically have the wood over Joe Root. Um, but I don't think Australia would have expected that when they, you know, when they turned up at the Gabba, it was Hazelwood who got Root out. And you think now this is going to be the key battle for Root in terms of batters in the series. Uh, and then you come into the second test without Hazelwood and you're thinking, right, Root's got him out of the system. There's no Cummins as well. There's no, there's not that guy who's going to be challenging Root very much outside um, outside off. Uh, and then Green comes in and there's just something about uh, his height must have something to do it, with it. Um, he just gets sort of kind of enough movement and and he, and he troubles the outside edge. And he's obviously making such an impact in terms of allowing first Pat Cummins in the last test, and now Steve Smith in, in this test to um, kind of, you know, basically let those premium quicks, you know, have a have more of a rest. Um, Lion can obviously hold up an end all day, but then to have another guy, I mean, that's just, you know, that's just that's gold basically for Australia. It was interesting today that he didn't bowl Green didn't bowl in the first session. Um, he did eventually come on uh, and he looked brilliant immediately. Uh, I think Steve Smith said afterwards that. He'd basically been told to kind of manage his workload because it, Green has had quite a few back injury problems, and he's been kind of managed all the way through in the last couple of years with his bowling. Um, but if he is protected right, um, and if he does start making runs, um, which he did start to do in this test, then I mean that just causes England even more of a headache, really.
0: Yeah, and also kind of you know like like England with, with when they get Stokes back, a, a full you know fully informed ben Stokes back. Actually, just the addition of. A really good all rounder makes such a difference to a side, the makeup of it. Changes overnight and as you say he's he looks a completely different bowler this winter to what he looked like last winter. Um Ben, Matt asks, what do you think the reasoning was behind sending the the Lions home? Surely it would have been handy to have a few more options around as some players look unselectable and the squad looks thin. Also, what is the reasoning behind Overton's position? He's hugely unlikely to play and is effectively another wokes or Robinson, surely Mahmood would have been more handy.
1: Yeah, to really good questions i mean the lions thing i can't really make much sense of and seems like another one so chris silver obviously at the start of the summer said that it uh, was determined to have no ashes debutants, uh and to give everyone who might play in the ashes a go before then which again seems like one of those things those plans that it's maybe wiser to have behind closed doors than in front of it because it's something that people can either hold you to or you'd end up holding yourself to more than you should like i think that there are players in that squad that England would like to have those options. I think that James Bracey probably got a bit of uh, his, too much has maybe read into his struggles against New Zealand when he was sort of batting out of his normal position, doing a job he doesn't normally do. Uh, he's not an especially good keeper. So that meant that he was taking low confidence into his batting and was then struggling and it was only two test matches. And then he gets, you know, a very good hundred against the Lions, but is uh, on the next plane home. So yeah, him especially would be one that I wonder why more consideration wasn't given to, uh, to keeping him along. The Overton one, I can, I can understand why he's in the squad in that uh, he is a capable injury replacement for uh, one of those four that played in that second test match. Uh, and England might well get injuries. I mean, you know, he's, we've seen he's a, he's a useful batter. Uh, he's not as good a bowler as any of them. Uh, but yeah, I would also have had move in the squad. And that was one of the things we said when the squad was announced was that it just seemed a bit uh, small, basically, and that you could have basically picked the same squad with a couple of like uh sort of exciting guys in there and it would have had quite a different feel about it uh i mean i don't i don't think the mood makes the difference in this series but especially because england uh for all the issues with selection for all they have occasionally bowled a bit too short I don't think they've too badly in this series I think that's been their issue and i don't think there is a, a batter out there that could exactly solve the questions but yeah those are two puzzling things for sure I think
3: yeah with just with the Lions being sent home I wondered how much a kind of mental well-being is, is an aspect of it that they don't want lots of players around who aren't going to play or be very likely to play I'm, I'm not saying that's the right thing to do but just kind of trying to make sense of, of why you would make that call because um, we know full well from previous Ashes tours that come Sydney is anyone's guess what the 11 will be um, and you know if they do end up picking one or two who are playing in the big bash, but having sent home the Lions who they have pinpointed as the best Red Bull players outside of the test squad, then that's just another example of England looking clueless and and planning becoming this kind of joke word, really. Um, it It is a curious one.
0: Stephen asks, as a fan, would you rather have England's Ashes record in the 21st century? So basically win or draw close series at home and get pummeled away. Barring one glorious exception in ten eleven, or Australia's walkovers at home, but no away series wins since two thousand one. Um, ben, do you want to answer that one?
1: Uh, that, yeah, I think you would rather have England, just because we've had the two most memorable triumphs in that time. Just about, maybe you'd say that thirteen fourteen was a touch more memorable than ten eleven. But I mean, two thousand five that that trumps everything, right? Having won that series, uh, you, you, you take, you know, you you, you take. 15-0 over the next three away series uh, uh, as, a, as a trade-off for that. So, yeah, I think I'd just about take England's, I reckon. Um, yeah, it's, it's a good point that Australia haven't won, won in England uh, for the last, what, 19 years, 20 years? So, yeah.
0: Yeah, but England are just abject in Australia at the moment. They've lost 11 out of the last 12 tests.
1: <laughs> but, you know, I'm sure any
3: of our Australian listeners will heartily disagree with me, but how much fun is it just hammering us... Every single time I mean they must be I know they want to win five 0 I accept that, but they must want tighter test matches and that that's the thing is uh, yeah I would I would definitely keep keep England's record uh, as my personal choice because it's just you know it's, it's, we're still quite early in the series, two hammerings are fine whatever but if we come to uh, Perth and uh, sorry Sydney and then Hobart and there's still massive thrashings. That's not really much fun for anyone, is it? I mean, I don't know, you tell me, Aussies, perhaps it is. <laughs> I,
0: I think I think the Aussie listening this will say yes it yes it is pretty fun. And yeah. <laughs> and, and, and also, I, I think I, I think I'd probably take Australia's recent record just because it is objectively better, right? Like if they absolutely obliterate England and Australia and then at at worst narrowly lose in England, that is that is doing better than narrowly winning at home and getting obliterated overseas, isn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah, but, but um, I mean, let's just go back to Australia. Not winning a series in England since uh, since what 2001, whereas England have won a series overseas more recently. You know, 3 0 in 2013, uh, Bell's Ashes. I mean, I mean that that was probably more of an an obliteration than we give it credit for. I know there, there were two of the games were were close, but it was three-nil. Pe- people at, at one point were predicting a sort of a eight-nil over the over the two series, which uh, <laughs> the second one was five-nil, but not the way that people thought it was going to be. Uh, but no, yeah, I think I think I would still take England, especially because I think yeah, the, the, the these last two series haven't been much fun, and I think at least at least it's it's almost a good a uh, uh, good thing for England to do. if if, if Australia are going to win, at least make it as sort of uh, as boring and as and as uh you know as as little joy taken out of it as possible. Uh, and that, that's the best we can hope for, I guess.
0: That's a that's a nice upbeat way to end the show. Um, and yeah, if any Aussie listeners want to disagree with Ben and Joe, they they are at Ben underscore and at Joe underscore Wisdom on Twitter. This has been the Wisden Cricket Weekly podcast in partnership with Charles Tirrett. Remember, please enter the competition to be in with a chance of winning a £500 voucher and also use that discount code. All details are in our description. Cheers R. cheers, Joe, cheers, Ben. We'll be back in a few days' time, just before Christmas and just before the Boxing Day test.
4: Cheers. Podcast Network.